Roll down tide. From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, this is the Beer Garden presented by Oxford Crystal. Like to hear a little bit more conviction in your take, though. There was a lot of maybes, a lot of what ifs, a lot of questions. You need to just get on here. You need to fire and and put me in a position where I have to tell you that you're wrong. And now, here's your host, Neil McCready. Nice, nice. Welcome to another edition of The Beer Garden, presented by Oxford Crystal. I'm your host, Neil McCready. Today on the show, it's an NBA show. It's All-Star Weekend in the NBA. Siku Smith of NBA TV and the Hangtime Podcast, kind enough to uh, spend uh, the better part of an hour with us talking NBA. We talk about Kobe Bryant's legacy. We talk about some of the races in the league and the future of the the bright future, I should say, of the Memphis Grizzlies. Also, talk a little college football with him at the beginning. Uh, Siku, really big Michigan fan, big college football fan, gives his thoughts on some of the uh, Ole Miss additions via Michigan on the uh, Lane Kiffin football staff in Oxford. So we'll get to all that in a little bit. First, let me tell you that we're coming to you. On behalf of the Oxford Crystal Highway 6 West in Oxford, right next door to the Oxford Exxon, where right now you can get 10 crystals for $6. You can also get the new Nashville Hot Chick. It's part of the Pick 5 for $5.55 there at Crystal. Of course, they have the Scrambler Breakfast Bowls as well. Great way to start your day. Plenty of ways to enjoy uh, your weekend as you uh, watch some college hoops as you get ready for the NBA All-Star Game. Whatever it is that you're doing, they can take care of you at the Oxford Crystal. Uh, I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900 is the number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. Right to the bottom line. No hassle, no haggle. You get your quote, and the rest is up to you. You can shop that quote around, or you can do what I've done, and that's hop into a Clark Ford today. You'll love the product. You'll love the service after the sale. Corey wants to be your truck guy. He wants to be your car guy. He'll prove that to you. 662-257-1900. We're also coming to you. Uh, on behalf of LB's Meat Market, LB's in Oxford, right across from Kroger, 2008 University Avenue to be specific. Listen, I can't tell you enough about all the great stuff at LB's. Give them a call, 662-259-2999. Tell Greg Jones and the people there at LB's what you want ready. He'll have it packaged up for you if you're in a hurry. What I recommend is that you go in, kind of tell Greg what you're in the mood for, and let him give you some suggestions. He'll give you some cooking techniques. He'll throw in some uh, some extras if you tell him you heard about it here on the Beer Garden or on the Oxford Exxon podcast. Phenomenal sausages, uh, great cuts with uh, beef, uh, pork, chicken, pretty much anything you could possibly want. I told you about the picanha, uh, the uh, bone-in ribeye, the tomahawk ribeye. Fantastic. Unbelievable, really. Really unbelievable stuff. It's it's Oxford so lucky to have LBs in it. If you're uh, living here, it needs to be a part of your routine. And if you come through here, you have a condo, you pass through, coming up for a baseball weekend, coming up for a basketball game, whatever the case may be, stop at LBs. They have great plate lunches as well. Needs to be a part of uh, your weekend when you come to Oxford. Again, 662-259-2999. Try some of the sausages. 
Let Greg take care of you. Tell him you heard about it on uh, the Beer Garden, on the Oxford Exxon podcast, and uh, he'll throw a little something extra into uh, into your sack, and you'll be thrilled that you uh, that you did. So Siku's going to join us in a moment on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. This weekend, uh, on Friday, it's Valentine's Day. The baseball season opens in Oxford. Rafters opens for lunch at 11. They'll have specials including frozen strawberry daiquiris garnished with Valentine sprinkles and fresh strawberries, perfect for your sweetheart. Enjoy a famous Rafters Bloody Mary and the best po'boys on the square served on Leidenheimer New Orleans French bread. The party continues on Friday night featuring dueling DJs. On Saturday, it opens at 11. Ole Miss Louisville baseball at 1.30. Ole Miss basketball at Kentucky at 1. Drink specials include $3 domestics until 8 p.m. And then on Sunday, the brunch begins at 10.45 featuring the homemade biscuits and chicken and waffles, live bluegrass music by Grassfire, and it's party on with the famous $2 mimosas there at Rafters Music and Food on the Square in Oxford. Now here is Siku Smith on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Siku, man, it's been a long time. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks. Yeah, man, no problem. Always good to talk to you. I, I know you're heading up to Chicago for All-Star Weekend, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, I know you're also a pretty big college football fan. You like it a lot. I think it's one of your uh, probably one of your guilty pleasures and, and passions, if I'm, if I'm correct. Yes. So I'm going to start here. We're taping this on uh, Wednesday afternoon. And the big story today in college football is is kind of rocking the sport a little bit. Well, there's two. One's the horrible story out of Ohio State that I'm, I, I don't really feel like getting into right now. And the other one is the one that, that has ramifications for the sport, and that is uh, Colorado, former Colorado coach Mark Tucker, has left for Michigan State. He took the Michigan State job a few days after he turned Michigan State down, and here he is. Uh, going to Michigan State, getting paid five point seven or so million dollars, so a, a tremendous amount of money, an incredible opportunity that he probably had no choice but really to take. And he's getting beat up. And then on the flip side, kids who signed with him just not just days ago at the University of Colorado are saying, "Hey, we feel like we were lied to. We 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 need we want uh, you know we're angry." And I get that too. I'm just kind of curious. You've you've covered a lot of college football before you covered the NBA. You you're familiar with stuff like this. What's your just thoughts on what's happening with Mel Tucker and, and Michigan State? Well, I think first and foremost, people need to re- recognize who makes the call on something like this. This is not Mel Tucker. This is Mrs. Tucker. Um, <laughs> no good wife is going to allow her husband to stare a job opportunity that with that kind of generational wealth attached and turn it down. I mean, and and put yourself in his shoes. If you're a reasonable American and somebody offers you that kind of money to do your job, you'd be nuts to turn it down. So I I feel for anybody that's put in that predicament because, yeah, you that is the great contradiction of college sports is that at least big time, you know, college sports, football, basketball, you're asking kids to commit to a program, to an ideology, to a, a way of life wholeheartedly. You're asking them and their families to jump in, you know, lock, stock, and barrel, you know, without the clear understanding for a lot of these people, Neil, who have never been a part of the college athletics landscape. They don't understand just how much of a business it is, just how transient it can be. So when it happens in, in these instances like this with Mel Tucker, 
it it's a shock to the system. So the people of Colorado are freaked out, which is pretty rich when you consider one of the most successful coaches in the history of their program they got from somewhere else. Gary Burnett was building a you know a program at Northwestern, and he goes to Colorado because he was the hot thing going. They needed a coach. Colorado snatches him away. You know, I wonder if they care at all about how those folks in Evanston, Illinois felt. You know, it's like you got to put yourself in in the shoes of the people going through it and have a little empathy and maybe it'll make more sense. But, you know, as a Michigan fan, I'm glad Michigan State did something right um, because that rivalry has <laughs> got flipped under Mike D'Antonio. And I want I want a, a piece of the action on the flip side now for the next few years. So welcome, Mel Tucker. I hope, hope Jim Harbaugh does to you what Mark D'Antonio did to Harbaugh and to our program for about the last decade. You know, it's funny because, you know, Tucker, three days ago when he turned it down, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, and I've read a little bit today that I think I'm right. I think when he turned them down, he intended to turn them down. And then they came back to him and said, okay, well, we found another truck full of cash, and <laughs> we'd like for you to look at that. And, and I think you're right. At some point, as a couple, as a family, uh, I'm, I'm sure his, his representation, at some point people looked at him and said, you know, Mel, I don't, I don't know that you – I don't know that I can advise you to say no to this. I don't, and, and, you know, and and and, I, and I, they they look at each other and say, "This this changes the outlook of our children, of our grandchildren. This is this is this like you said, it's generational money." And I'm sure there's a big part of him that feels sick about leaving now, but the opportunity is now. You know, you can take a job and say, "Hey, this is where I'm going to be forever," and then. The flip side of this, and I, I tell people this all the time, young people, it's not that you should be disloyal to the people that you work for, but you need to always remember that you're you're, you're easily replaced. Let's say let's say Colorado goes two and ten next season, and then, exactly. then things fall apart, and hey, there's nobody at Colorado that's guaranteeing. Hey, Mel, no matter how bad it gets, bud, we got you. We're with you. That, yeah. that, and that doesn't exist. And hey, Siku, nor should it. But so, it, but it does make it where you have decisions to make. Now, what I think is interesting uh, is these kids that sign with them. I, I do believe there should be some recourse for them because yes. I've seen people say, well, you know, you sign with a school, not a coach, and that is utter bullshit. You, yeah. you, I mean, ideally, yeah, but the truth is when you're uh, when you're an athlete, you're you're signing with that coaching staff. That's that, that's who sells you on the place because you know you. Let's say you're a, a kid that visits. I don't know. Let's let's say Michigan, Ohio State, uh, Tennessee, Florida, and. Uh, I don't know, Utah, okay, just out of, out of the blue. All of those places have great facilities. All of those places have resources for the kids. All of those places have fans and all the stuff. They're going to be able to show you stuff where it's just like it, it, it all looks the same, just different uniforms. You're going to ultimately go for the people. And yeah. so when you go for the people and then those people leave, I do think the NCAA, this is an opportunity for it. <laughs> and I know what I'm saying. It's an opportunity for it to get something right here to maybe say, hey, we're going to give you a month. If you want to get out, you can. If you want to take an extra visit or two, we'll, we'll, we'll waive some rules here. Give you a period of time to uh, reevaluate your decision. And then if you still want to stick with Colorado, great. If you want to leave, we're going to let you out. Yes. They need the same freedoms, Neil, that the coaches have to get up and move 
and you know a one time get out of jail free totally with no you. penalty you know and and if you do that nobody can complain because then everybody is going into the transaction with a clear understanding of what's at stake and how it works um the thing i hate and it, it happens every year has been happening every year since i've been aware of it is you know when guys spend the, you know however long recruiting some kid and then two days after signing day oh yeah by the way that's that assistant who spent the last two years butting you up and kissing your mama and eating or cooking and telling you how, you know, life's going to be so great at whatever university. Oh, he, he's packing his bags and going to a better opportunity elsewhere. <laughs> the day that, after signing day. It drives, oh, man, that, that one to me is just the worst. It's, because, it's wrong. Yes, because it's so disingenuous. And, I, you know, and I've heard every kind of recruiting pitch as a reporter, as a parent, um, as just an observer, as a recruiting fan, and it's like, I always tell people who are who are new to the process, and I, I got a young cousin who's a freshman at Michigan, you know, playing on the defensive line, and it was fun seeing it from you know a top, you know, hundred fifty recruits aspect, like from the inside, watching he and his mother navigate that process, and you got to be really clear headed about it. We started conversations when he was in ninth grade, before he got on anybody's top whatever prospect list, you know, because he was six two, three hundred pounds in the eighth grade. I knew he had a chance to be, you know, a big time recruit. And his mom knew it and we talked about it. And, you know, I, I explained to her, I we took him over to Tuscaloosa to visit Alabama once when he was, you know, like I, I think some before his junior year of high school maybe. Um and my boys and, and and him and his mom and I, we all drove over from Atlanta. And I'm telling you, I was ready to commit to Nick Saban when we left town. Like, that's how impressive the red carpet treatment was and how mind-blowing, you know, seeing the facilities the way, you know, families see it for the first time and, and get that taste of big-time college football. These kids are getting their minds blown on a, on a regular basis, but they're not allowed to make the adult decisions that everybody else involved in the process gets to make. And that, I just think that's inherently unfair. You mentioned Michigan a little bit. I'm sitting here in Oxford, as you know, home to Ole Miss, and Ole Miss has hired yeah, about half of the people off the Michigan <laughs> staff. <laughs> off the Michigan staff, what can you tell me, as someone who's pretty familiar with the Wolverines, what uh, what Ole Miss is getting with uh, Partridge and Devin Bush and and some of the people that have come over? Man, I'm salty. I mean, you know, obviously, Coach P was one of the best recruiters that Michigan has had during Jim Harbaugh's tenure. Um, so losing him is a major blow. He was, he was a pipeline recruiter for not just New Jersey, where he had coached high school ball at a high level, you know, championship level, but he had turned into a national force, you know, on the recruiting trail. Um, so losing him is a, is a blow. Devin Bush senior, you know, produced one of the best players we've had in the Harbaugh era. And, you know, and his son, who's with the Steelers now and behind the scenes from what I hear from a lot of people was one of the, the most important, you know, pieces we had in terms of just, you know, in, in any program, you know, this as well as I do any, any team, any operation, there are people behind the scenes who are kind of, you know, the glue to the operation that really keep things locked down and, and on an even keel and just as a, the perfect kind of fit, for that job that, that requires you to do your work outside of the spotlight. And he was one of those people. It, I was surprised, honestly, that he wasn't elevated 
you know, to a position coaching, you know, opportunity over the past few years. Maybe he didn't want it. I don't know. Um, I don't know what the particulars were, but I was sick to see him leave. Um, I would have really loved to see him stay with the program. But you know what? Again, that is the nature of the business. And I know that. I understand it. You, you kind of deal with it. And the other thing about it, Neil, is with any change, sometimes somebody leaving opens the door for somebody else really good to come in and add a fresh dose of whatever they bring. Um, both those guys brought it with them when they came to Michigan from their previous stops. And I'm hoping that, you know, of course, that it, it continues in that vein in Ann Arbor, but also good for Ole Miss. You know, if you're trying to rebuild a program and you're trying to start fresh and come with kind of something new, bring in the right kind of people. Bring in fresh blood, guys who have been a part of building something sustainable and, and turn them loose, and I think they'll be fine. I think they're going to be great. You know, the recruiting opportunities are going to be immense, you know, for, for Coach P in the SEC region, you know, attracting kids that want to come and play SEC football. I don't care where he's recruiting them to. If you know how to sell it, you know, you're going to be able to get kids there. Yeah, talking to people who know him and have been around him, he, he's a guy that I think has a chance, probably a really good chance, to one day be a, a Power 5 head coach. And, and you know, now he's been in the Big Ten and now he'll be in the SEC. And you're right, I think if he's a big part of turning turning around Ole Miss and making it a winner for uh, for any period of time, that's going to enhance his opportunities kind of around the country. Yeah, and then, you know, look, there are guys who we've seen it multiple times, you know, um, guys who coach. To me, this is what makes it awesome is that, you know, a guy who's coaching high school football one day and five, six years later he looks up and he's a coordinator at a Power 5 school or, you know, coaching on a, at a major college program. That's that's the career trajectory to go back to what we talked about at the very beginning. I mean, that's who doesn't want to climb the career ladder that way? I mean, I come, my first job ever in the business was covering small college football on Saturdays while I was in college. I, my first story I ever wrote was about Millsaps college football. I mean, you you think I want to cover? No, no offense to Millsaps. No offense to the Clarence Ledger, a place I love, gave me my start. But like, sure. you think my ambition was to stay, you know, 25 years later to look up and be like, man, I'm still here at the Clarence Ledger grinding away. It's like, no, I had, I had bigger ambitions. And I don't know why anybody would be shocked at, at someone else's career advancement or career ambitions coming to life. You know, that's, that's what you want. Yeah, I mean, kind of going full circle with it. I mean, now Colorado's got an opening. And, you know, you know that as we have this conversation, there are coaches all over the country getting their agents to reach out and say, hey, find out what's going on. Oh, yeah. And that's just how it works. You know, that's life. And you don't know when opportunities are going to come, but you do know that when they come, if it's one you want, sometimes the timing's not perfect and you just have to jump. You never know. Listen, I remember when Nick Saban was coaching Michigan State and – I thought he was whining. You know, he used to always whine about, you know, the, the Michigan had all the advantages. He didn't. And I, and I thought to myself, what a whiny dude. I was like, I can't stand. You know, he's a Michigan State coach. So of course, I wasn't going to be fond of him. I was like, yeah, this dude makes me sick. Blah, blah. Had you told me then, he, you know, at the end of his career, he, he'd be talked about as the greatest coach in college football history, I'd have laughed at you. So, I mean, you never know. The, the, the journey for each guy is, is what he makes it. And, you know, good luck to Mel Tucker and anybody that that's climbing in their careers, man. That is that is the American dream. I think everybody should understand that component of it. In in any sport or in any endeavor, people are trying to move up 
to bigger and better things in their lives. And it, unfortunately, somebody tends to get burned along the way. That's just the way it is. We mentioned you're headed to Chicago for the All-Star Game. Um, I guess the story there when you get there, at least the at least the beginning, I'm guessing, and probably throughout the weekend, is still going to be very Kobe Bryant-centric. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard the news? And, and what I know that you've been covering the NBA for a while. I would imagine that you've had more than one or two uh, – interactions with Kobe over the years? Yeah, I've had quite a few. I had quite a few. Um, he was fantastic to me later in his career after I'd spent a night hanging out with he and Mark Spears, a friend of mine who uh, works for ESPN, the undefeated, and his security guard. We all hung out one night in Salt Lake City during the playoffs in 2010, I think it was. Um, and, it, you know, you see a different side of guys. Obviously, since he stopped playing, seeing him as a father and a philanthropist and a businessman and a creator of, you know, all sorts of different content. I mean, you got to ch- listen, we got a chance to watch him go from being a 17 year old kid, brash, you know, scared, cocky, talented, all that good stuff to being a 41 year old father, husband, you know, um, pillars, communities. It, it will be something that hangs over the league. I think, not just the rest of this season before, you know, every time we hear mention of Kobe the next few years, it'll sting, you know, and in, in all time, you still, you know, you know, when you hear his name, when we talk about the end of his life, it's going to be something that's bitter for a lot of people. Um, so, yeah, I, I expect this weekend will be dominated by tributes, thoughts, discussions, reflections, and, you know, and everything um, concerning Kobe. But, I think that's what you do when you you lose somebody that had his impact on the game and, and on, you know, society at large and, in an untimely fashion, and especially in the way that it happened with the his daughter obviously passing in that helicopter crash and then the seven other people. Um, it's just a tragic end to all those lives that, that is going to be hard for anybody to wrap their head around. I was... My wife and I were driving. We were in Tusk, past Tuscaloosa, I think, on our way home from Jackson, visiting our kids at college. We had gone over to visit them and to visit the guy who was my mentor, who was sick and has since passed away from uh, cancer. And we had just decided Saturday morning. I said, "Hey, let's get up and go over and you know see him, see the kids, spend you know a, a good twenty four to thirty six hours." You know, with people we love because we don't see him every day. We're not with him at all times anymore. So we had already been on a uh, on a trip that was kind of putting us outside of our regular nine to five space and into a more you know relaxed family space. And then to get the call, text, and the first one I got was from a friend of mine who's not affiliated with the NBA but is a big basketball fan. And it was just a text that said, "Hey, is this real about Kobe?" And I. I was catching a nap. I was in the passenger seat, and I, you know, my phones go off all the time. So I, I didn't pay much attention to. It. I looked and I kind of put it back down and went to sleep. And I was like, "What about Kobe?" I, I'm, you know, I don't know what it was. I'm, I'm not even sure what I initially thought he was even getting at. Um, so then, I, ten minutes later, maybe my phones kept going off, and I woke up and I looked. So let me get online and check social media to see what it was about. I got on Twitter and saw Kobe's name trending. When I fought, saw the first highlight from TMZ. You know, my, I mean, my, yeah, my, my stomach just hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. I was, I was floored, you know, like there's no way 
on a random Sunday, you expect to get that kind of news. And the worst part about it, Neil, was the there was so much unconfirmed information being thrown out there yeah. in this age of social media, which, you know, you know well how that's changed everybody's lives. Um, a good friend of mine, a guy who has to work with, you know, on a regular basis, Rick Fox, was mentioned as one of the people initially who was on the helicopter so that's right you guys did a lot of nba tv stuff together didn't you yeah we did a podcast we went around the country on bus tours together so yeah our other partner lang whitaker who works for the memphis grizzlies he and i got on the phone and you know we were preparing for the worst because we saw rick's name so we were reaching out to rick trying to find him to make sure this wasn't true um so for for about the next you know 80 miles you know, I got my wife in the driver's seat, you know, going, I can't believe this. Oh, my goodness. You know, and I'm in the passenger seat hustling, trying to, you know, I'm texting everybody I can think of. You know, one of Kobe's, you know, officers in, in his company, one of his chief marketing officers, a good friend of mine. I just was in L.A., in Orange County, at the facility this past summer during USA Basketball's uh, pre-China tour, and I spent the day at the Mamba Sports Facility, look, seeing it from the inside out, checking it out. Kobe wasn't there that day, but, you know, his staff was there, and I got a chance to see kind of their creative space. It was all the experiences you have with somebody come rushing back, you know, when something like that happens. And I, I hate it for, obviously, for Vanessa Bryant and her three other daughters and all the people, family members who lost somebody, but also for the rest of us because we don't get to see what the second chapter of his life might have been you know, uh, had he been around to really give us the full breadth of his creativity and, and his energy, man, it's, it sucks. And because uh, we were starting to get a, a, a glimpse of just what a genius he was beyond yeah. beyond a great basketball player, and he obviously was one of the best basketball players to ever live. But no know, question. But you start to as you get away from that, that becomes less important, kind of. You know, uh, because yeah. you know it's it's. It's a complicated thing, really. It's one of the things I wanted to get to you about because you, you're around these young guys that are now the, the current NBA players, and they yeah. worship this guy. And and I don't mean that in a sacrilegious way. I just mean they worshipped him. I mean, he was he was their Jordan. Yes. And and you can tell they're, they're still – they're so impacted by what happened. They're motivated and impacted and all that. But this guy was about to do really big things, and – and and you know he he'd already he'd won a, an Oscar and, and he was going to win no telling what all he was going to do and he, yeah it, what I found most interesting listening to people tell stories about Kobe Bryant was uh, Ramona Shelburne I think was the one that was telling this particular story it was mm-hmm. about the night of his final game uh, you know he went for what did he go for fifty against uh, 60. 60 against yeah. against Golden State and. Uh, or, or Utah, whatever, whoever it was, uh, and and it doesn't matter. It, it, he he went for all those points, and she said she had to kind of rewrite a lot of the big stories she had been working on, sort of in collaboration with him. And she sent him this email: "Hey, you know, I've got to rewrite everything." And he just sent back a ha ha ha. And she said, "What do you have planned for tomorrow? I need some of your time." And he had this whole day lay, laid out that started at basically five a.m. and she made the comment she said it was obvious that the work ethic that he had applied to basketball he was now going to apply to everything else he wasn't he wasn't going to be the guy that he would have earned the right hey look I mean, like you said he he made more money than he could have ever spent he he could have easily just said hey you know what man i'm gonna go hide on a beach 
for the rest yeah. of my life and I'm going to sip uh, banana daiquiris and I'm going to watch the waves and, and enjoy my, my riches. But that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to impact things. And then the other place that, and I think probably where you and me, you know, we, I'm not, I'm not criticizing your basketball playing ability here, CQ, mm-hmm. but, but <laughs> you, you and I can't relate to his basketball skill. There's no, there's no, no. Relay, relatability there. No. But no. we can relate to being a dad. And we yes. can we can relate to taking your child to a uh, to a travel tournament, to coaching oh, yeah. coaching your child, to starting to get so excited about your child's future. We can relate to that completely, and that's what he was about to do. And I, I always thought the thing that he was doing that was so cool, because I think she was going to be a great player, and he was going to be this visible champion of women's basketball. <laughs> And by proxy, women's sports in a way that it was going to make those of us who are in the media and those who are in the mainstream media like you, you're a national guy covering the NBA, it was going to make it where guys like you weren't really going to be able to ignore women's basketball, even if you wanted to. Yeah, he he was definitely, and he was already on the path to changing that dynamic, you know, um, just by virtue of him showing up to as many games as he did, WNBA games, women's college games, he he ignited an interest in the sport via his daughter. You know that was unprecedented. That would have been the, it. Would have been the equivalent of Michael Jordan doing it a generation earlier. Um, and you can't pay for that kind of public endorsement, right? In any amount of dollars, like right. that would have been the greatest assist the WNBA has ever gotten. You know, you get an iconic player, a guy who, for generations of kids, not just current NBA players, people older than them, people younger than them, Kobe is their touchstone to the league. He's their Magic Johnson, Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, whatever, for an entire generation and then some of young people. Why is that? So, it's just by virtue of, of his, you know, next level ability and the timing, you know, yeah. the vacuum in which he came through the league, you know, in those post-Jordan years when everybody was trying to find the next best thing. You know, we wanted to see the next iteration of MJ. Yeah. Kobe was the closest thing in theory and in reality to the greatest player a lot of us had ever seen. Because you're kind so, of, you know, you're right when you think about it. Because you know, at, at, at the end with with Magic and, and Bird and and that group, as as their skills declined and, and Magic with the HIV and, and and Larry Bird with the back injury, as they were no longer the Magic and Bird of the the prime when you know that Lakers Celtics rivalry was so incredible. The the, the there was a sh- the, the the move from those guys to Jordan was seamless because they were yes. they were contemporaries. You know, they, they, there was a passing of the baton, and and Jordan in those declining years, th- he declined for a while, and we didn't really get there. Was no one really to pass it to? No, I mean Jor- Jordan left, came back with the Wizards, and we were still having debates about was it T Mac, was it Vince Carter, was it Grant Hill, was it Kobe? Like who would be the next superstar? Not just player, but that entire, you know, all-encompassing persona, the the on and off the court vibe, 
Was it Allen Iverson? Was it, you know, was it Shaq? Who would take the mantle of being the face of the league in the years after Jordan was done playing? So we hadn't quite sorted that out when Kobe was reaching the zenith of his career. By the time Kobe got into that space where he was considered the greatest player in basketball, the best player in the world, you got to think LeBron James had come onto the scene. LeBron had started chipping away at that foundation even for Kobe. So it was a very specific dynamic. You know, my oldest son is 21 years old, and his little brother is four years younger than him. My oldest son was a diehard LeBron James guy from the moment he ever saw LeBron. But my youngest son was a Kobe guy. Wore the jerseys when he was a little kid. Wouldn't stop talking about him. He's also a Tim Tebow guy when he was a little kid, which was very frustrating. But that's another story. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? You, yeah. So you don't have a direct line on when somebody makes that emotional attachment to the game. So Kobe was there for, like I said, generations of kids. Five, six, seven years separation for people. That's generational. There are guys who think, that Steph Curry and the Warriors invented basketball because that's when they started paying attention. Well, that's when they made their connection to the game. And Kobe was that piece for, for quite a few millions and millions of people around the globe. I also think you got to remember Kobe's unique global upbringing, you know, growing up in Italy for part of his youth, having that kind of dual identity as an American sports star, with an international flavor to him gave him an appeal that I think reaches beyond just the average American phenomenon, you know, kid star turn turn, you know, adult superstar. Right. He's got more to his story than just that. Yeah, it's a good point because he he had a, a following in, in Europe that most you know, some NBA players have, but not to the the degree that he had and probably the- And in China and all over I'm telling you, it, it was He was one of the first guys to go to China and embrace that part of the global reach of the game, too. It's it's pretty remarkable. I was hoping, you know, to be old and gray when we, you know, we started recalling Kobe's life, his story, his game. This would be the summer he would go into the Hall of Fame, potentially. Um, All those things you think about, you know, retroactively going and examining these things, and we're doing it far sooner than we thought we would. But he'll have one of the richest tapestries in terms of his life and times. Even at just 41 years old, he packed a lot into it, Neil. I mean, a lot. Let's talk about uh, his his former team, the Lakers, as we sort of transition into the, the, the current game as they most all the teams have played 53, 52, 53 games, 54 games. Lakers at 40 and 12 as of this recording – do they do they have enough to win a title? They do. Um, there are four or five teams that have enough. If if all things are equal, the problem is we have no idea what the dynamics will be by the time we get to June. And I, I point only to last year. Had somebody asked me in February before All Star Weekend, do the Raptors have enough after they'd done the things they did at the third deadline to to change their roster? You think the Raptors have enough to win it? I would have been like, mm, I guess. You know, may, yeah. Like, I feel stronger about the Lakers right now than I do about the team that won it last year. But think of all the stuff that changed and went 
in the right way for the Raptors to get there. Oh, sure. A, the bounce of a, of a ball about four or five times off the rim for Kawhi Leonard against Philadelphia. The Golden State Warriors breaking down physically. You know, once they got to the final, I mean, all these things. Do the Lakers have the personnel right now to win it? Yeah, they got Anthony Davis and LeBron. If they're healthy and playing their best basketball, you know, from mid-April to June, they're as good as anybody in terms of chances to win it all. But I would tell you that the Clippers are in a similar, you know, situation as are the Bucks. Um, you know, potentially the Raptors again, given the way they've played this season. I mean, the the company that you keep at the top right now is is pretty crowded. There's more than one or two teams, I think, that I could envision clipping those nets. What do you make of Toronto? Obviously, Nick Nurse has done a great job there. Pascal Siakam has become kind of a superstar caliber player. They did really well in the draft, getting Terrence Davis from Ole Miss, you know, and what this as not even in the draft as an undrafted free agent. Undrafted, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, he's been terrific for them and, and they still have Gasol and they still have Lowry. And I think, I think they have a really good organization there. I think there's a really good culture there. It, it, they've, they lost Kawhi and, Took them a little while, but they've kind of gotten to a place where, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that they're better than they would have been with Kawhi because that's insane, but they're really good and they're very fun to watch and, and they play in an Eastern Conference that still, as of this day, it feels kind of wide open. I know Milwaukee's really good. I know the record's really good. There's just something about Milwaukee when I watch them. I just wonder when teams lock in on Giannis in a playoff series, the way that teams will lock in on Giannis in a playoff series. Do they have enough pieces around them to win one of these seven-game series against, you know, super high-level teams in an Eastern Conference Finals sort of a thing? Yeah. Um, I think Toronto is – and I, I failed to mention Boston earlier, but Boston is in that mix of teams as well. Um, the Toronto is the picture of organizational fortitude for an NBA team. In terms of, they have a president in Masai Ujiri who has done as fine a job crafting a culture, not just building a roster or connecting the dots from a G League, you know, franchise to the big team and how that's supposed to coexist. But I'm talking just top to bottom, a basketball operation that has covered literally each and every base necessary from internal scouting league scouting, international scouting, you know, player development of your own players, a, a clear understanding last year at the deadline that Marc Gasol and others would be good for them, the, the wherewithal to strike while it's hot and trade DeMar DeRozan, who was, you know, a franchise icon in Toronto, to do all of those things and put all those things into place and then to have the guts to take the risk, a one-year gamble, which is all it was on Kawhi, and to see it through, that that infuses your organization with so much confidence in terms of what you do and how you do it that they are li- literally living on the reserves of that confidence right now. And that's sustainable. It, it's been done before in this league and sustained. San Antonio is a, is a living, breathing example. they I mean, we're talking two decades of it, of living on that sort of sustainable model. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to have Hall of Fame players all the time. It doesn't mean you're going to win a championship every year or any of that. 
What it means is you will have a chance to compete to get into that eight-team mix in, in whatever conference you're in to chase a championship year after year after year. And Toronto has built that sort of infrastructure. They've built that sort of diversity in terms of how they do business and who they have on their roster to be in our consciousness as a contender in the East for as long as they'd like to be there. I think we all thought before the season, at least I did, you probably didn't, you're, you're a little wiser about this stuff than I am. I tend to listen to a 13-year-old boy that lives in my house and, and, and sort of <laughs> sort of jump, jump on bandwagons a little. He, he thought this was the year Philly just took over, and and maybe maybe they still make a run in the playoffs, but right now they look a bit pedestrian, 34 and 21, and they're there, they're fine, but they certainly don't look like a dominant team. What's happened there? Uh, well, your thirteen-year-old is is basically just like the rest of us guys who cover this for a living. Um, he's he saw the same crumbs that we all did. You see the talent and you know Persian talent in in Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons, and then some of the additions Al Horford, Josh Richardson they make, Tobias Harris stays. You know all these things you see and say, all right, this is the team that's next. And if not for a fortuitous bounce of a basketball, they might have been there last year. Who knows? And sometimes the the dream that some of these franchises have of contending and the reality are just too far apart for them to connect the dots. Philly is Philly is on paper and in theory what you'd want a championship team to be about. Elite talent, you know, quality role players, uh, a coach who's been there long enough to establish some sort of modus operandi for his team to follow, and ownership and, and management that's willing to push the boundaries to put you in a position to compete. And for whatever reason, people look at it and say, well, why isn't this working? Well, let, they, they got the best home record in the league. They, they've shown themselves in, in high-level moments against – big-time opposition to be every bit as good as we thought they'd be, but they have the fatal flaw of not performing at a consistently elite level in a game that with 80, 82 nights a year we get to examine you, Neil. Yeah. Unlike, unlike most other sports, with that many opportunities to take your measure and for you to show up something you know less than what we expected as often as they have, it makes us all adjust our vision about who we think the Sixers are. They're still that behemoth that your 13-year-old thought they were going into the season. They're just not that team often enough for us to buy into them winning championships. They'll be one of the interesting teams to watch in the postseason because they're 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 just dangerous. They're dangerous, but they're like you said, they're 25 and two at home, which tells you just how bad they are on the road. Yes, they're they're as dangerous as anybody's going to be. If Joel Embiid is healthy and Ben Simmons is locked in, but they're also just as likely to, to get popped in the first round. They're, they're that for, for the recruitniks out there. They are the they're that you know boomer bust five star. You know the kid who's got all the talent in the world, but but so much baggage along with it that you don't know if he's going to end up being an all time great or a washout. I'm going to close with Memphis in just a minute because I want to get your thoughts on John Morant and, and those guys. First, let me ask this. If it's not the Lakers and it's not the Clippers in the West, would it be Denver, Utah, Houston? One of those three teams, are they are they capable of of making a deep playoff run? 
Oh, that's a tough question. Um, I think I would think on in, on paper it would be Denver. They they look like what we'd expect that kind of team to be, but we just don't know. We never, you know, you never know. Houston to me is still a little uneven. Utah is still a little uneven. Denver's depth is so good. I, I had Denver during the playoffs last year, you know, early on. Denver, Portland, I was out there doing those series. And Denver was so impressive. Just the organic growth that they had undergone. Um, Mike Malone, a guy I've known for years. His yeah. dad was an assistant in the league. I've known his dad forever. Um, so I knew they had the right guy coaching them. And they, they got to the moment and could not tote the load like they got through a game seven on their home home floor with a chance to get to the western conference finals and 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 fold it up and it happens to a team that's not yet ready for prime time i think they are by virtue of that experience and others i think in other factors i think they're ready to take that step this year but it's all until we get to the moment that's that's the reason why i tell people all the time my dad and i talk you know, NBA every day. We talk everything every day. And <laughs> one of the things I learned as a kid watching him and his buddies watch sports was I understood, have understood for a long time, the importance of how different the playoffs or a championship level moment is compared to just a regular season game and what you see throughout the course of a, of a season. Like there's that, that heightened level of significance, the, the, Fear-inducing moments that arise when you're playing for everything. Yep, it's so real, and I don't know that people understand that. I don't know that it's the part of it's the part of the Michael Jordan story that we 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 don't tell. We tell about we tell about the six titles and his incredible greatness and the way that he transformed the game and all of those things. And those are all real. And we talk about how he left to go play baseball for a while and came back and the loss of his father, and all of the stuff about Jordan. The part that we gloss over is the Pistons kicked his ass first. All the years where he got his nose busted, they it's almost forgotten unless you're from Detroit or a Pistons fan. You know, and it's just that there's such, there's so much on the line, you know, when you get to the playoffs. And, there, and I don't know that people, even the guys playing, I don't know that they have, absorb just how fleeting those moments are until they get done playing or until they're close to finishing their careers. And then they realize how difficult it is to get there and then how much more difficult it is to perform at the highest level in those moments. You, we talked about Kobe. I'll tell you a great Kobe Bryant story. Okay. Game 7, 2010 Finals, Staples Center. My colleague Sean Powell at NBA.com and I are sitting three rows up watching the greatest flame-out of an all-time great player in a Game 7 that we've ever seen. Kobe is shooting a – it was 6-19, I think, at one point. Oh, I remember yeah. this game. And we were sitting there, shot, we were both writing for the next – you know, off the game, and we were, we were talking back and forth all the time about, we're like, how do we put this into context that a player of Kobe's ilk could go down on his home floor – in a, in a finals where he's playing the arch rival of his franchise, and he's going to do this on his home floor when he's trying to establish his legacy, winning a second straight title without Shaq, and to kind of etch his name in there right, you know, by Jordans. And it was like, 
we spent the entire game almost trying to figure out how do we capture that. And while we're doing that, Meta World Peace and Pau Gasol saved his bacon. And they win the game. And his performance became a footnote in what we ended up writing that night. And it just goes to show you, though, this is this is not preordained. All of it is to be determined. All right, CQ, sorry about that. Uh, the... A lot of people that listen to this are Memphis Grizzlies fans. They live in the mid in the mid south. They they're getting excited about these young guys, John Morant, and all of those cats that are there in Memphis. It's a fun Jaron Jackson Jr. It's a fun group to watch. Obviously, they're not going to they're not going to win a playoff series this year. In all likelihood, they're going to run into the Lakers or uh, Denver or, or the Clippers or somebody, and they're going to get a playoff lesson that most young teams get early on. But then they've they've got the pieces in place to be pretty interesting in the next few years. When you look at Memphis and you look at the Grizzlies, what they're building, what do you see? To a lesser extent, I see what Oklahoma City was building when they had their young group. Um, and, And nobody knew at the time that they had three future MVPs on that Thunder roster. That that was even above and beyond what anybody could have imagined for them. Um, But John Morant and Jaron Jackson alone should make you feel some kind of way if if you're a Grizzlies fan or if you're watching the game with the Grizzlies as, as kind of your, your focus for the NBA. There, there's so much to work with. And I was up in Memphis a few weeks ago. I got a chance to sit down with Ja. Interview him for a piece we did um, on NBA TV and NBA.com that was pretty telling. I, my my line of questioning, or at least one of them for him, was how quintessential Southern his basketball story was for today's age. You know, kid born in Georgia, reared in South Carolina, goes to college in a in an out of the way place. You know. that nobody really could tell you where it was, you know, in Kentucky. Um, And then gets drafted by the the one truly mid-Southern, you know, not a deep South team. To me, the Grizzlies in Memphis is a, a different kind of South than the deep South where I live here in Atlanta, where you might be familiar with. It's only a three hour drive from that next line to me, but, it, but it's a very distinct cultural difference. And for him and his story to travel that path to me is something that the Grizzlies can build on for the, the entirety of his career. I mean, he will have a very specific story that's kind of true to that franchise if they play it right. And, with a next level talent, like with a guy who we, we've seen enough of him to know already that he's a different level of talent, if they just stay the course, if they don't get panicky and try and, you know, skip steps and you let he and Jackson and Dylan Brooks or whoever else is going to be a part of that thing, if you let them grow together the same way they let the grit and grind Grizzlies evolve and become what they became 
then you got a chance to do it right and, and do it for years to come in Memphis. The only thing you worry about is not talent. It's not his, his temperament or his the folks around him. All of that is in place with John Moran. Every single, I mean, I look, I've studied the kid and I'm like, every box is checked. All they have, all he has to do is be in an organization that has the wherewithal, and I think they do, the wherewithal to understand how unique he is for them right now. And if they and if they do that with he and Jaron Jackson and whoever else is going to be a part of their core group, they're going to be fine. My man, thank you so much for the time. It's always great to catch up with you. Be safe getting to Chicago, and I hope you uh, enjoy All-Star Weekend. I will, man. Appreciate you, Neil. Thank you. Bye, CQ. All right. Thanks to Siku for his time today on the show. Always fun for me to catch up with him. If you like the NBA, he's one of those guys you should be listening to. Been covering the league for a long time. Knows it backwards and forwards. Understands the history. Understands where uh, the league is going. And um, he's pretty high on the Grizzlies. So if you're a Grizzlies fan, I hope you, uh, you probably enjoyed the last few minutes of that podcast quite a bit. So enjoy NBA All-Star Weekend. Enjoy Valentine's Day, the start of the college baseball season. Uh, basketball season continuing on so hope you have a great weekend we'll be back next week going to touch on some uh, professional baseball here soon get you ready pitchers and catchers reporting full squads reporting later in the weekend so it's that kind of fun time of year to get started we'll talk about some of the races to expect in the national and american leagues working on a couple of guests in that regard so until next week hope you uh, enjoyed this edition of the beer garden presented by oxford crystal take care